1: Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Tech billionaires have an unusual preoccupation with space travel. Jeff Bezos, the boss of Amazon, recently spoke of housing millions of people in spinning space outposts. Sounds expensive. Just maybe, though, the resources beyond Earth will make it worthwhile. After all, if there's one thing space has, it's space. And a stark warning for American fans of the avocado. Supply is tightening. Price volatility is up. The avocado-based brunches so famously beloved of millennials could be, well, toast. But first... Just a few weeks ago, things were looking rosy for Austrian politician Heinz Christian Strache. Mr. Strache's hard right Freedom Party had been ruling in a governing coalition, and he was the country's vice chancellor. At a campaign event for the upcoming European elections, he spoke from a beer tent about some of his favorite themes. With a beer glass in front of him, he railed against immigration, saying it causes massive development failures. He said natives, or ancestral people, were becoming a minority in Austria, that the country did not want Islamization. Now, his career has taken a nosedive.
2: He was seen in a video. It was a sting. It was filmed covertly in 2017. And it ha- all happened in Ibiza, so it's become known as the Ibiza scandal. He's discussing the possibility of illegal donations from a woman who claims to be the niece of a Russian oligarch.
1: Anne McElvoy is a senior editor at The Economist and was recently reporting in Austria.
2: And there was also some other rather darker stuff about controlling the media and this being part of a deal in return for state contracts.
1: In the wake of the scandal, the Austrian chancellor, Sebastian Kurz, dissolved the coalition government by calling for elections in September.
2: The government has fallen apart. Effectively, it has collapsed because the Freedom Party was the minority party propping up the Conservative Party in government in Austria. So there is really a government that is now having to go forward, hold new elections, and we'll see what happens then.
1: So this right-wing party that was propping up the coalition government has now got itself into some very visible trouble. What happens now?
2: The interesting thing about this story is that you had this very charismatic young leader, Sebastian Kurz, taking over one of those big traditional parties, Austrian conservatives. Typically, these are the kind of parties having difficulty at the moment and having these populist challenges across Europe. What he did was reach out to the Freedom Party, which is pretty hardcore. And he said it's much better to bring these guys into government. We can sort out things to the satisfaction of the broad centre-right and further-right. The problem now is that has been absolutely torn asunder.
1: So presumably in the forthcoming elections, then the, the Freedom Party, this far-right party, will do extremely poorly and, and perhaps the, the Conservative Party will get an outright majority.
2: I think it's quite difficult for Conservatives to get an outright majority. They've struggled for years. They've always needed coalition partners. The Freedom Party, we simply don't know. You would say, wouldn't you, this is one of the great pratfalls of political drama in Europe. But let's not forget they do have a very strong base, a very strong in certain parts of, of Austria. and also. Austrians are a bit defiant and often when they find that they've got a leader, whatever their political taste, the base of that leader under pressure has often stood very firm. It's not absolutely clear that being hugely embarrassed once that figure is gone destroys your vote. Sebastian Kurz, however, I think will not want to go back into a coalition with these guys. He really has had his fingers burnt.
1: And, and what about beyond Austria as we kind of head into the European parliamentary elections? Will this this story have resonance for all of those people thinking about other populist, right-wing, hardline parties?
2: I think the kind of nuanced populism that Sebastian Kurz represents still has a lot of adherence across Europe, and I don't think it's on the way, and I think the European elections are probably going to suggest that. What does it mean? It means coming up with... a solutions or possible solutions to immigration and asylum crises, which are usually about keeping the people who want to come quite a long way from Europe's borders and particularly the borders of its inner state. So it can mean trying to do deals to keep them just at the edge of the broader EU. But I think that way of taking some of the language of hatred and stripping that away, leaving that to the far right, while at the same time you preach pragmatism, but you really try to clamp down on the numbers coming in. I do think that is the politics that is gaining in salience across Europe.
1: That election to the European Parliament begins tomorrow, with all 28 European countries voting over three days. In the five years since the last elections, nationalist parties like Austria's Freedom Party have seen their fortunes rise.
3: Well, one feature of the last few years in Europe has been the growth of uh, extreme parties, both on the right and, and on the left, particularly on the right, I suppose. Chris Lockwood is The Economist's Europe editor. You've seen in Italy the Northern League, Lega, becoming a much more powerful force in politics. You've seen in Spain the rise of this small uh, new Vox party, uh, in Poland uh, a shift to the Conservative Party of Law and Justice and and so on and so forth. So it's uh, to be expected in these elections that you will see a bit of a tilt in the European Parliament towards the far right. Does that mean that
1: the the, the sort of overall tilt of the Parliament itself will, will be to the right, do you think?
3: I think this has been rather exaggerated. If you take the combined forces of what you could call the nationalist right, if you define those parties as being the ones that are outside of the mainstream existing parties, I wouldn't expect them to gain more than 40 or 50 or maybe 60 seats, which is a sizable number. But remember that the European Parliament is 751 strong you say that this this rise in the sort of extreme parties isn't
1: quite so worrisome as as some might think but i mean do you, do you think this election kind of takes the temperature of the the eu as a whole
3: well that's a very interesting question i don't want to underestimate what's going on here you are seeing forces that previously were not in mainstream politics, taking up bigger roles in national parliaments and bigger roles in the European Parliament. So that does matter, um, because it also requires the parties, particularly on the centre-right, shifting a bit to the right in order to fend off that challenge. So so there is an impact. Um, And it's a response to a number of things. One, the continued depression of wages and the hangover from the European um, Eurozone crisis of 2010 to 11, and before that, the the worldwide um, credit crunch of 2008 onwards. The fact that Europe did receive an enormous number of migrants coming out of the Middle East, and that's led to a tremendous backlash in quite a number of countries. So, you know, these are genuine things that are genuinely happening, and they're they're shifting politics to a certain extent in in a rightward direction.
1: So does it seem to you then that, that people are kind of losing faith in the EU as an institution?
3: No, I don't think so. I mean, actually, if you look at uh, all the the polling, it suggests that support for the EU is at rather high levels. Of course, it went down during the economic crises, but we're we're past those. Not that, you know, the economies are in a fantastic state, but economic growth has returned. Um, Unemployment has come down. Um, And, of course, you have the experiment of Britain. Britain voted to leave the EU and has got itself into a tremendous mess ever since, not able to decide... Quite what the mechanism for leaving would be, not being able to form a consensus on when and how to do it. And as a result, um, uh, every other country where there have been um, uh, sort of exit type movements have all turned around and said, hmm, maybe this isn't such a great idea. So the fascinating thing is that despite all of the problems that Europe's been through, maybe even because of them, because it was seen to have just about. Survive them, people have come back to thinking, well, maybe this organization isn't so bad after all. Chris, thank you very much for your time. You're welcome.
0: Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states.
1: The idea is nothing new, but not so long ago, colonizing space was the preserve of science fiction.
3: Welcome to the world of tomorrows. Have you ever wondered where we will find the food, clothing, and shelter we will need to sustain the world's exploding population in the years ahead? In the timeless distances of outer space?
1: In recent years, though, talk has increasingly turned to bringing these ideas into reality.
4: I strongly believe we should start seeking alternative planets for possible habitation. The alternative is to become a space-faring civilization and a multi-planet species, which uh, I hope you would agree that is the right way to go. Yes?
1: Space is aptly named. There's more than enough room to satisfy the demands of humankind. And there are countless rocks rich in resources. Perhaps then Jeff Bezos' ambition to establish large off-world settlements needn't seem so otherworldly. The boss of Amazon also has a private rocketry firm, Blue Origin, which wants to do just that.
4: Jeff Bezos' ambition is to get millions of people living in space, most likely in these sort of giant floating space colonies. Ryan Avent is a senior editor and economics columnist at The Economist. The question is, how do you get them there? And you can imagine a number of different motivations to get people on rockets, which might kill them, to go live where no one else has lived before. People might go to escape persecution or there could be some sort of cult-like movement to go off-world. You know, you can sort of see Jeff Bezos as the kind of inspirational figure who might inspire millions to follow him. And then I think the other sort of non-economic or or quasi-economic motivation might be that climate change is making life here a lot more difficult, or it could be that there is some sort of other looming extinction threat. But absent a reason to escape Earth altogether, I mean, why, why go to space? When Jeff Bezos gave his big talk, he talked a lot about the resource constraints that we face on Earth what happens when unlimited demand meets finite resources? The answer is incredibly simple. Rationing. That's the path that we would be on. Then, how it's going to be necessary for people to get into space if we want to realize true material abundance. The good news is that if we move out into the solar system, for all practical purposes, we have unlimited resources. You, know, you imagine 40 years from now, right, we have the technology to mine space rocks or other planets and come up with unlimited resources and energy, essentially. And that makes possible complete material abundance for people. The problem is, if you try to do that on Earth, you run into the fact that there may not be enough space. There definitely won't be enough space in the most desirable locations. If we were to go to space, however, and particularly if we were able to develop the technology to build these perfectly engineered space habitats, then anybody could have a piece of Southern California. But you could only do that in space where there's a ton of space. The comparative advantage of space is space.
1: (laughs) But I suppose initially you'd need to get the first colonizers up into space. What would the economic incentives be for them?
4: I think the idea would have to be at the start that there's some sort of really valuable economic niche up there in space that requires people and is so valuable that the money people make from it, you know, overcomes the enormous cost of having to ship all sorts of food and supplies and other things from Earth up into space. And you could imagine a few things that might fall into that category. There are people who are working on developing mining in space, you know, lassoing a giant asteroid or some other space rock and turning it into a giant mine for valuable resources. The problem with those sorts of things is they probably won't provide a ton of human employment. A lot of it's going to end up being done by robots. So then you start to think about service sorts of jobs. So space tourism is is an obvious one. There might be places in space to treat patients with conditions that are made less painful in a zero gravity environment. But then there could also be potentially profitable activities that are banned on earth and which might find some sort of niche in space. People might go up there to have themselves cloned. You can't do that legally on earth. But I mean, even thinking about this opens up a new frontier,
1: (laughs) final frontier (laughs) of, of regulation. I mean, how is all of this stuff to be regulated? What does the rule book for space look like?
4: There's not a ton of space law at the moment. There was an outer space treaty signed in 1967, which said that more or less the law of the sea applies in space. You're not allowed to claim territory. You can't say the moon is American or Chinese or whatever. But sovereignty does apply on individual ships. A law was passed in the U.S. in 2015, which said that anything valuable you happen to find up there, it belongs to you, but not every country accepts that. So it's a bit of a gray area, but, you know, you look at Silicon Valley tech bros and the way they approach things, and often it's kind of a move fast and break things, and we'll worry about the legal repercussions later. I mean, we've been taking all of this at fairly face value, doing a pretty
1: large-scale thought experiment here. In that context, do you think that colonizing space is the way
4: for this limitless abundance, this, this sort of boundless future? The truth is, even if it's technologically possible to get people into space and build these habitats, it's certainly not easy. Space is extremely inhospitable for creatures like us. And however bad things here are on Earth, it's almost certainly going to be much easier to make Earth better than to make space livable because it's a lifeless void, a vacuum. Other planets don't have the atmosphere that we need to breathe, don't necessarily have protection from solar radiation, don't have food. You know, they're pretty nasty places. If you have the earthly ingenuity to save us from the fate that's going to befall this planet... You might just want to do that and focus on it. These guys could use their resources here to make sure that the place that's already good for humans to live stays good for humans to live, that we don't mess up the environment and make it uninhabitable. And use some of Jeff Bezos's $150 billion fortune to maybe work on ways of solving poverty or improving public health. I mean, do you have a view on why it is then, given that all of this effort, and
1: in particular all of this money, could be thrown at earthly problems we already know we have, and in some cases already have some, you know, nascent solutions for, why do these multi-billionaires focus on what seem like outlandish solutions we may not need? There's a few potential answers.
4: One is that when you're like Jeff Bezos, and you're the richest man in the world, you've built this world-straddling company that's unrivaled by any other. That frees you to think very big thoughts about, A, what you want to do with the rest of your time and money, and B, what over the very long run is going to be best for humanity, at least as he sees it. And so I think to some extent, there really is an honest belief that he's helping move humans toward true security and prosperity for everyone. I think to some extent, these guys have a weird obsession with insulating themselves from troubles on earth. And so there's a bit of, you know, We don't want to be brought down by all the rest of you jerks, and building a habitat where we can run away to in space is one way to get around that. But then also, they're a bit like teen boys, you know, and they have their obsessions, and one of those obsessions for a lot of them is space, the thing that drove the imagination of a lot of people in America in the 60s and 70s. And now that they finally have immense resources at their disposal, it's got to be really hard if you think you can do it. Not to build yourself a rocket ship and use it, you know? So I think some of it is just kind of, hey, this is the coolest plaything they can come up with. it's sci-fi in a way meets philanthropy. Yeah. I mean if you can create your own amazing magical world in space, and at the same time save humanity, and maybe get away from Earth when it goes tail in a handbasket, why not do it? Brian, thanks very much for coming in. Thank you, Jason.
1: If you've been looking at your co-workers' lunches or around your local sandwich shop and thinking, people are eating a lot of avocados these days, you'd be right.
5: The average American consumes about three and a half kilos of avocado per year.
1: Marie Seger is one of our data journalists and a millennial who loves the fruit. And yes, it's a fruit.
5: That's nearly four times as much as Americans consumed in 2000.
1: I mean, I knew it was going up, but I didn't know it had gone up that much. Is that rise in consumption set to continue?
5: Yeah, but the rise in consumption isn't so much the problem as the production. So the production of avocados is facing some issues, especially in California. Because of the wildfires, the droughts, and the kind of volatile weather, the harvest is going to be really low this year, probably.
1: But I thought a majority of the avocados came from Mexico.
5: Well, yes, they do. So about 87% of American avocados came from Mexico and it's set to rise to 93% in the coming season. But that only started in the mid-1990s when the American government lifted an 84-year-old ban on the import from Mexico for avocados specifically. And since then, we've kind of seen this rise in avocado consumption and also avocado imports.
1: And so what's the problem then if there's only a small fraction that actually comes from America, then why do production problems there have such an effect?
5: So it's actually a combination of problems with not just the American avocado, but also the avocado imports from Mexico. They're facing problems with the border and tariffs by the American government potentially, so the American supply can kind of patch over that. The Mexican farmers can sit on their supply and wait for prices to rise because avocados can hang on trees for several months without rotting. So in the run-up to important festivities like the Super Bowl, when Americans consume a lot more guacamole than usually, they can sit on their produce and just wait for price to rise. And previously, in that case, there was still an offering from Californian avocados, at least during the summer, because Californian avocados only ripen in the kind of spring, summertime in America. they Whereas Mexico can grow the fruit all year round. So during the kind of next season, so um, summer, autumn, we're expecting more price volatility because of these issues, basically.
1: So this kind of volatility then that, that we've seen recently will continue?
5: Possibly, yeah. So on April 1st, the price for the Mexican Hass avocado rose by 3rd, which was the highest rise in one day in almost a decade. So the price volatility definitely won't disappear in the near future.
1: And you're a big fan of the fruit?
5: Yes, definitely. What,
1: what are you, how, how are you dealing with this volatility?
5: I guess I'm going to save money for a house um, <laughs> <laughs> instead, or I might have to uh, have something else on paste in the mornings.
1: Marie, thanks for your time. Thank you, Jason. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash radiooffer. 12 issues for $12 or £12. See you back here tomorrow.
0: Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. From a local business to a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools,